Right, well, we're going to spend some time now studying the Scriptures together. Um, This is a central part of what we do every week. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We've been studying the Gospel of Luke, and we're calling it Jesus, the early years. Uh, So in the period we're in right now, we're studying the first few chapters. We're going to look at the early childhood stories and then early public ministry stories of Jesus. Then we're going to take a break for a little while in our weeks before Easter, and we're going to focus on spiritual practices. Uh, We're going to have a prayer and fasting guide that we're going to pass out during that time, encourage you to practice fasting in different ways, and we're going to do a sermon series called Fasting and Feasting, and we're going to study the biblical feasts. And so we're going to just kind of look at these spiritual practices, these rhythms of feasting and fasting leading up to Easter. Then we'll reset back to Luke again and finish out the Gospel of Luke through the rest of the year. So this week we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black Bibles that are under the chair there in front of you, and you can turn to page 859. Page 859, Luke chapter 4. Uh, We've said again and again, one of the main focus of Luke is the humanity of Jesus. And so Christians, we believe that Jesus is both God and man. And so we worship Jesus as God. He's also a model for us to follow. And we see this a lot in the book of Luke. And so the story we have today, we're calling it Be Led by the Spirit. Be Led by the Spirit. And we're going to be taught how to be people who also depend on the Spirit. We're going to see Jesus being led by the Spirit. Uh, We like to emphasize this. Jesus did not cheat. He lived as a normal human being. He didn't sin. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that he can relate to us. He can sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way as we are, as a weak and frail, limited human being, yet he did not sin. And so that distinction is hard for us to even fathom, But we are drawn to the Savior who, even though he was God and we worship him, we also can relate to him. He struggled. He's been tempted. He's been beat up. He's been hungry like us. And we're going to see him enter into this temptation in the wilderness with Satan, with the devil, and he's going to come out victorious. Now, we're focusing on being led by the Spirit because that's a focus here of Luke. When you compare the language to the other Gospels that talk about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, same story, they frame it slightly differently. Now, they all indicate that Jesus was led by the Spirit, but the other two talk about how the Spirit led him into the wilderness. This one here in Luke talks about Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit while he was being tempted, and how the Holy Spirit helped him to resist that temptation. So I don't know about you guys, if you've ever done a college tour, but we did a lot of college tours when our kids were graduating from high school. And often when you go tour a college, you have to have someone lead you around to show you the way. And it was interesting to reflect on how that was done differently at every college that we went to. I can remember going to one college and it was very professionally done. They'd obviously spent a lot of money on it. It was a full-time staff member that was leading us. There was a lot of audiovisual presentations. Uh, We got a lot of uh, swag to take home. You know, it was very fancy, very impressive, kind of hard to relate to the people leading us around. And in the end, that college was way too expensive for us, right? Um, There's another college that we went to, and it just kind of felt like this, this, you know, college girl that was leading us, it was her part-time job, and she was just checked out. 
It kind of just felt like she did not care about us. She was just in it for the money. She was just reciting her speech. And again, we, we didn't pick that college, right? Like they just, it just felt like they didn't care if we came or not. Then we went to this other college, and the girl was the sweetest thing in the world. She was just adorable, but she wasn't really the, the brightest one, you know? Like she didn't really have an answer to our questions. She didn't really seem like she understood what was going on. You know, we, we kept wanting to say, oh, oh, bless her heart. You know, just, <laughs> we didn't end up leaving a kid at that college. There was this other college where we went on the tour and the guy that led it was a college student, a real college student. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't some super impressive professional, but he was a real relatable college student. He knew what he was doing. He was able to answer our questions. And that was a college that one of our kids was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is a real place with real people where I can get an education. This is where I want to be. Now, I just share that story because the way you are led is important. And here we're seeing Jesus be led by the Holy Spirit, but to take a step back, we're being led by Jesus. The invitation is for us to follow Jesus, to look at him, to see how he walked with God. And and that's what we're going to see in this story. We're going to see him speaking of the goodness of God, trusting God, and not trusting in the words of the devil, the tempter, who is always tempting all of us. So let me read the story, and then we'll try to break it down in a way that makes sense. So Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We study the Bible every week because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. But we believe, like Jesus, we need to be led by the Spirit. So we're going to pray that his Spirit would help us to hear his word, to love his word, and ultimately to trust God the Father. So let me pray. God, we ask that you would be with us, that your Spirit would lead us and fill us, help us to trust our Heavenly Father like Jesus. And God, we thank you that the number one reason for us to trust you is you sent your son, Jesus, to give us life, to take our sin, to rise from the dead. We thank you for that good news, and we pray that your spirit would change us with it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is to be led by the spirit. What does it mean to be led by the spirit? 
Um, another language that's used in this text and used in a lot of other places in Scripture is to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean for us to follow the Spirit and not just follow our own heart? To follow the Spirit and not just follow our flesh and our own strength, our own abilities. It's a contrast made again and again throughout Scripture. I also want to let you know that this passage, that this story is kind of hyperlinked, kind of connected to many other places in Scripture. Uh, The most clear connection here is a comparison to the wilderness wanderings of Israel. The wilderness wanderings of Israel in Exodus and Numbers, that is then contrasted in Deuteronomy to the second generation because the first generation was not faithful. They failed. They gave in to the temptations of the serpent in the desert, in the wilderness. Jesus comes as the new Israelite, as the successful Israelite, as the one that actually trusts God. And so that's the number one contrast story because Jesus is going to be quoting Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy 6 where Moses was literally telling the people of God, hey, don't give in to the temptations like the previous generation did, but trust God. And so we're going to see Jesus quoting that. That's, that's what's happening in the story. It's also, though, a reflection of his victory that's contrasted with the failure of Adam and Eve, who gave in to the temptations of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And there's language about this that comes up in 1 John uh, chapter 2 or 3. There's also language in 1, John, or 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And of course, the story is repeated in Matthew and Mark as well. So a lot of other places you could look for other information, encourage you to do further reading. But I want to try to really zero in on what's taking place here. And here we see again the model of Jesus resisting temptation as he's led by the Spirit. And he speaks the Word of God. And what I want to uh, help you to understand culturally is There are a lot of Christians in our day and age that will tell you the mark of being led by the Spirit or the mark of being filled by the Spirit would be something miraculous and showy. Now, I want to be careful here and make a distinction. We believe that God can do miraculous things. He can do whatever He wants for His glory. We also believe that by nature of the definition of a miracle is it's unusual. It's not an everyday thing. And as we look at the New Testament, what we see is the clearest, most miraculous, most amazing thing that the Spirit does is it helps us to adore and believe in God. That's the ultimate miracle. So if you're searching for the Spirit, if you want to be spiritually transformed, if you want to be led by the Spirit, trust God. And that's what we see lived out in Jesus. He trusts the Father. He speaks the Father's words back. And so we see this as we move through the text, three temptations, three answers that Jesus gives. We see him modeling what it means to be led by the Spirit. Each time we see him trusting God more than the temptation. When the temptations come, are you going to trust God or are you going to trust the shortcut? So the three temptations, the three opportunities for trusting God One is the Spirit-led man trusts God more than hunger. Secondly, the Spirit-led man trusts God more than platform. Thirdly, he trusts God more than control. So trusting God more than our hunger, more than our platform, and more than control. So number one, we should trust him more than hunger. We see this really focused in verse 3 and 4. We see the temptation, then the answer of Jesus. But let me back up to verse 2 to remind us we already read this, but this is the context and it's important. He was hungry, right? Let's reread verse 2 again. 
for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. This is called an understatement, right? Like I've done fasting. We're going to call the whole church to fast here in a few weeks. I've never fasted for 40 days, y'all. Like that's, that's incredible. Uh, so for 40 days of fasting, and he was hungry. And now the temptation comes. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. He's like, come on, if you're really the son of God, you can do this. Snap your fingers, solve your problem. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, Jesus answered, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes scripture. Again, he's quoting Deuteronomy. They were tempted in the desert. The Israelites were tempted. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to listen to God's word as it's proclaimed in Deuteronomy through Moses. And I'm going to trust God more than my hunger. Man shall not live by bread alone. Anybody know the rest of that quote? Very good. You weren't quite in unison, though. I'll say it out loud for everybody else. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. I mean, we need bread. Come on. It's not bread alone. You can have bread and still be living in a state of spiritual death. That's what the scripture is teaching us again and again. Bread's not bad. Hunger is a normal thing. God made us with hunger. Hunger means we need to eat. It's like a normal thing. It's okay, right? He's not saying hunger is bad. He's not saying bread is bad. He's saying there's something more essential. There's something more foundational that without which a life full of bread is going to be a meaningless life, a life of death, a life of terror and separation from God. So the devil says, just snap your fingers, turn some stones into bread. And just for clarity's sake, uh, Jesus does some miracles where he makes bread, right? Like we know that Jesus is not against bread making miracles, right? He's not against feeding people. He's not against you being hungry and asking God for bread, right? The Lord's Prayer in Matthew and in Luke, he says, pray and ask God to provide you daily bread. Y'all, it's not about the bread. It's about your heart posture before God. Are you going to be led by the Spirit to trust that God is good even when you're hungry? Or, I don't know if you know this phrase, even when you're hangry, right? Amen. Amen. Thank you. In that moment, are you going to trust God? You're like, no, God is good. I mean, I am hungry. I guess I could feel like he's abandoned me and he's terrible just because I'm hungry. Jesus shows us the way. No, be led by the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit supernaturally change your heart. So in those moments when you're aching, when you're longing, you can say, you know what? I need God more than I need this short-term fulfillment. I need God more than I need this immediate need met. Do we have needs? Can we ask God for them? Yes, again, he tells us to pray for daily bread. I grabbed a picture here of someone feeding someone. It's supposed to be like a soup kitchen idea. Brian talked about some of the funds we share as a church go to benevolence ministries. Some of that specifically goes to the food care center. We believe that's a thing Christians do. It's a thing Christians have always done. Christians historically are the ones that abolish slavery, are the ones that establish schools, are the ones that established orphanages, are the ones that feed the hungry, right? That's a thing that Christians do. It's not the only thing we do, though, right? And we talked about this. We're going we're to help hurting people, but by definition, what makes us a church 
is we're the place that lives on the Word of God and proclaims the Word of God. That makes us a church. And then, yeah, of course, we're also going to tend to people's needs. James says, like, don't just tell people, oh, God bless you and send them out when they're hungry. Help them, right? The Scripture is real clear. We should help people. It's a part of what we do. If we can help people, we should help people. But we should make the Word of God more important. It has a more important part, uh, place in our hearts. So we're called to trust God, trust Him even more than our hunger. Now, part of why this is confusing is because in our culture, we don't experience a lot of hunger. It does exist. I mean, it happens, and we try to deal with that. Like I said, we give money to the food care center. But generally, the biggest uh, health problem in our culture is we eat too much. So this is kind of a confusing thing for us, right? It's kind of hard to make sense of this because like in our context, being hungry is like wanting our favorite thing or wanting too much of the thing, you know? Like for me, where I struggle with hunger is like, I wish I could eat three bags of chips and it's okay. Um, You know, like we're wrestling with the types of foods we're eating and how often we eat them. And that's kind of a different thing. But, But we know what it is to groan and to long and to ache and to feel empty because we live in the same kind of wilderness that Jesus lived in. We live in a broken world. We live outside of paradise. You don't live in Eden, and I don't live in Eden. Central Texas is pretty close. (laughs) But we all live in a broken world. We ache. We long. So, So maybe physical hunger is not the best way for you to think about this temptation. Maybe we should think about it more metaphorically, like when do you feel empty? When do you feel that metaphorical hunger, that emotional hunger, and you're tempted to take a shortcut to satisfy that instead of just saying, God, what, what do you have for me? You speak to me. What does your word tell me? Here's some circumstances I think that might help us to relate to that. Circumstances we struggle with, circumstances that are more normal for us, the pain that we deal with. You might have chronic physical pain. And we live with one of the most advanced medical technologies in our society that the world has ever seen, and yet we still can't solve your chronic pain. You're just hurting, and you're tempted to take a shortcut to solve that pain, to do something to make the pain go away. And I think Jesus is modeling here turning to God with your pain and saying, God, will you help me? Can you, can you send a doctor that can solve this pain? If not, Lord, help me to depend on you. The, the model of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, take this cup of suffering from me, yet not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Help me with this pain. Don't take a shortcut. I think another area where we ache and we hunger is money. Struggle with finances. Again, we live in the richest country in the world, but we all struggle with finances, and the economy is in shambles, and Eggs, you know, cost more than steak now. Like, everything's crazy, right? And so we live with a lot of financial confusion, with a lot of struggle there. And so we're tempted. We're, we're tempted to maybe lie a little to get more disability money to help out because finances are tight. Or maybe to lie a little to get more money from the business or from our partners. Um, maybe it's a relational thing. Maybe you feel a hunger for that loneliness to be over. 
feel like your spouse doesn't understand you or your kids are rejecting you or your friends are not there for you. And you're tempted to abandon those relationships altogether or betray them. You may really struggle with how things are managed. The world is disorderly. The world is not well managed. Maybe it's your local church, not well managed, and it's driving you crazy, right? Maybe a business, maybe your home. And maybe you're in a position that you can't really change things and the boss over you is doing things that frustrate you and you're, you're tempted to take shortcuts to fix it, to edge people out of the way so that things will be right. And I think in all these temptations, again, we should turn our hearts back to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. I can't, I can't live by bread alone. I can't live by having all my immediate hungers and aches satisfied only because I could have all those things fixed and still miss you, God. Help me to live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. One of the best places to start is with Scripture memory. We talked about this at the beginning of the year. We've encouraged you guys to read the Bible. We've got a Bible reading plan on the table in the back. encourage you to make that a central part of your life. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Listen to the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Meditate the Bible. Sing the Bible. These are all really important things. But more importantly, love God's Word. It's really a heart posture, right? Like you could know the Bible better than anybody in the world and, and really not love God. That's the issue. So feed it. It's like kindling, right? Like build that fire. Feed that fire with God's word. Memorize scripture. Do it. But pray, God, will you send your spirit that I would when I'd love your word, that I, would, that I would trust you, that I would actually believe it, that I would actually see you as good. That's the model we see of Jesus. He actually trusts the Father. He loves and trusts God's Word. The second point is we should trust Him more than platform. We should trust Him more than platform. The terms here in the text are words like kingdom, authority, and glory. In our internet age, the way we translate kingdom, authority, and glory are words like platform, reach, audience, influence. Those are kind of our modern celebrity internet words for this, right? I think platform is helpful because it's a central word for people in ministry. I'm standing on a platform right now. I'm literally standing on a platform. And that's a biblical word. Another translation for the word platform is pulpit. We often think of this as the pulpit, but the word pulpit means platform, right? Platform is also a word for military force. And so this is a strong temptation Because a platform to preach the Word of God is a good thing. And a military platform, if used to bring justice to oppressed people, is a good thing. If you're in the military, you want to have a strong platform. For me in ministry, I want to extend my platform. I want to tell more people about Jesus. And so this temptation hits really close to home. I can remember years ago when we were just starting to talk about and pray about planting this church. Coming out of Temple Bible Church, I love to teach the Bible. I love to spend time with people, but I'm a disorganized mess, y'all. So I remember talking to the executive pastor there, and I was like, yeah, I feel called to teach the Bible, but I wish I could just teach the Bible without planting a church, right? Like, I don't want to plant a church. And he told me, well, sometimes if God calls you, to teach the Bible, he's also calling you to build a platform. And so this was very meaningful to me. Like, okay, well, I'm going to invite some people to help me, and we're going to pray. And God has built a platform here. 
where we've gotten to share God's word uh, to many people in Colleen. We've seen hundreds and thousands of people come to Christ, grow as disciples, and sent missionaries all over the world. We praise God for that platform, for that reach, for that influence. All glory goes to him. And what we're going to see with Jesus is Jesus, at the end of the story, is going to have the largest platform in the universe. Matthew is going to end it with, Matthew actually makes this the last temptation. Why? Because he also makes it the very ending of his book. Matthew 28, all authority, all nations, everything's given to me. So go make disciples of all the nations. And then what happens next? They worship Jesus. Jesus has got the ultimate platform. So what is this about? Are platforms bad? No, it's kind of like the bread thing. It's not about the bread. Bread's not bad. Platforms are not bad but we can be tempted to take a shortcut. Let's read it again, verses five through eight. In verse five, it says, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Very creepy U2 song came out in the early 2000s with this line in it. It'll all be yours. All you have to do is bow down. The devil says, all you have to do is worship me and I'll give you everything. That's gotten worked into a lot of myths and stories that people have told over the years. And it all starts here. Verse 7, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him again with the word. The Spirit of God leads Jesus to love, believe, and speak the truth. Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Give your awe, your devotion, your adoration to God alone. If you love him, ultimately everything else will work out. So we have this temptation a lot these days. Um, As just an aside here, this is not really the main point. But one question I kind of wrestled with is like, is the devil lying here about owning everything? Like, does the devil really have all the kingdoms or not? So there's a couple of cross-references. 1 John 5.19 indicates that he is kind of the leader. He's kind of in charge of this world. Um, And then a lot of people would look back at Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve fell in temptation. Again, kind of an echo of this story where Jesus succeeds and doesn't give in to the devil, but Adam and Eve failed, our first parents. Well, when they failed, there's a sense in which they gave their authority as the human leaders of the world over to the devil. And so there is a sense in which the devil is in charge of this world. That's kind of tricky and hard to understand because obviously Jesus is ultimately in charge. And so there's a sense in which the devil has this kind of diminishing authority over the world as we establish through the preaching of the gospel and through right living, just actually obeying God we begin more and more establishing his kingdom on earth. We're looking forward to Jesus returning and and just finishing it, right? So we're living in the time between the times where Jesus by his resurrection power has defeated the devil, and yet the devil is kind of still halfway in charge of the world, right? So it's a little tricky because the devil's a liar, so you don't want to believe him too quickly, right? But again, 1 John 5, 19, other things indicate the devil is kind of in charge, and he kind of can, to some degree, pass out favors to us. So he will tempt you just like he tempted Jesus. Like, hey, if you just worship me, I'll give you more stuff. I'll extend your reach. 
you'll have more influence. More people will like you. And that's a strong temptation. I grabbed a picture of uh, an advertisement I found online. You can buy Instagram followers, right? Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying if you go to this business, you've sold your soul to the devil. Maybe. But the idea is taking a shortcut for, for broader influence, right? Are there ways where you're tempted to take a shortcut, to have a broader influence, to have more reach, to have a bigger platform? And again, we, we struggle with this because when you want to do good things, it's good to have a good platform, right? And so we always have to be re-entrusting ourselves to the Lord and making sure that he's the one that gets our ultimate glory and worship and awe. God, I love you more than the platform. Uh, We see this worked out in Galatians 3. In Galatians chapter 3, there's a contrast. Really, the whole book of Galatians is contrasting spirit versus flesh, right? We can depend on the spirit or we can depend on our flesh. And it's contrasting kind of our own abilities with depending on the promise of God, the gospel of God versus the law of God. The law of God is good. Our flesh is good. A platform is good. All these things are good gifts from God, but they're not enough. We need God himself because we're going to twist it if left to our own devices. Galatians 3.2 says uh, this way, let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. You did not receive the spirit by doing the right thing. You received the spirit by hearing with faith, by trusting with empty hands. I can't do it, Lord. My platform's not enough. My flesh is not enough. My strength is not enough. My charisma is not enough. Jesus, I need you. That's how we receive the Spirit. And so we see this contrast, platform versus trusting God, flesh versus Spirit. As I kind of researched the view of being led by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit in Scripture, I noticed this, uh, this kind of pattern again and again. We're tempted, again, to, I mentioned this at the beginning, look for, look at me, I have magical powers. Like, that's, that's what we're tempted towards. Like, that's what it means to be led by the Spirit, is look at my platform, look at my miracles, look at how amazing I am. But when you actually follow the train of how it's discussed in Scripture, over and over and over again, when people are described as being filled with the Spirit, do you know what they're doing? They're speaking about the goodness of Jesus. They're adoring God. They're worshiping him. They're saying God is so good. They're clearly testifying to his goodness. And then we see a few other places where being filled with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit backs us up to something before that proclamation. It backs us up to something a little more central, and that's a heart posture, again, of adoration and love for God. So later in Galatians, it's described as the fruit of the Spirit. If you're being led by the Spirit, not being led by your own ability, not being led by your own strength, not being led by your own platform, not being led by your own career and respect, but being led by the Spirit of God, humbly trusting Him, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to love Him more, and you're going to love other people more. The fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace and kindness. Your character will be transformed. So again, are you going to trust God more or trust your platform? Again, platforms aren't bad. Again, a a lot of being filled with the Spirit in Scripture is is having the ability, like 
the Apostle Peter, like the other apostles, to say God is great. And they told a bunch of people. That's a big platform. Lots of people heard the good news. But I'm saying we got to back it up here and see the character of Jesus, the character described in Galatians, and say, ah, it starts with my heart being submitted to him. You shall worship the Lord and him only. When you worship false gods, when I worship false gods, when I worship abilities or comfort or any other thing, those things make me a slave. They shrink me. They make me less human. When I worship God, then I'm able to speak more clearly about him, and he begins to change my own character. And I see him doing that in your life and in others. The more you trust him, the more he causes you to love him and love the people around you. One of my favorite sections of scripture that talks about this spiritual transformation of our heart rather than our platform, I think it leads to some platform proclamation, but it has to start with our heart, is in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, I've been praying through this a lot the last couple of weeks. This is a prayer that Paul has for God's people in Ephesus, but us as well. It says in Ephesians 3, according to the riches of his glory, I pray that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, being led by the Spirit, listening to the Spirit, being a spiritual man or woman is loving God. When the temptations come, be like, yeah, this, this hurts. Yeah, I'm, I'm aching. But God's good. I know I can trust Him. And I love Him so much, I can cry to Him. I can, I can grieve to Him. I can lament to Him because I know He's safe and I can run to Him. He's my only refuge. He's my only hope. Trust Him more than platform. Finally, we see that we should trust Him more than control. Trust Him more than control. Again, this is very difficult if you are a leader uh, or a parent or I think just a human being at all. Um, it's hard to be out of control. And again and again, life bombards us and we lose control. Our plans are knocked off course. So trust him more than control. We see this in verses 9 through 12. He took Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. It's very high up, way, way high up, multi-stories up in the air. And it also overlooks a cliff, right? So it's, it's high building and then looking down a, a rock cliff. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And then he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's quoting Psalm 91. Now, this is real popular with soldiers, right? Because it's like a battle psalm and it's uh, praying God's protection. What the psalm is clearly teaching is that in God's hand, we have ultimate safety. We find that by faith in Jesus through his resurrection power, we will have ultimate victory. Sometimes we don't get immediate safety. Sometimes we lose this battle, but we win the resurrection war. And so Satan is kind of misusing this the way we sometimes misuse it, like, ah, I'm going to do this risky thing and pray this prayer of protection. God will have to protect me. The Jews were often guilty of thinking 
superstitiously about the temple as well. So it's taking place in the temple, and they often use the temple like a lucky charm. Like, ah, nothing can happen to us. We've got the temple, right? And so there's kind of an abuse of your relationship with God. God's the one who's in ultimate control. He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who's king. He's the one who is God. And so this is the, the kind of circumstances of this temptation that Satan is giving to Jesus. Here's the thing. He knows if Jesus is the son of God, Jesus more than anyone in the world deserves the protection that's promised in Psalm 91. What does Jesus say? Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Frankly, that one's always kind of confused me. I was like, but I mean, he's Jesus, right? Like, can he do anything? I was looking at one of the notes in the Net Bible, the New English Translation, said here, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. I had mentioned this before. All of this comes out of Deuteronomy. And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, and it says in the Net Bible notes, the point is that God's faithfulness should not be put to the test, but rather as a given. God's faithfulness should be assumed. God continually took care of his people. He provided for them miraculously in the desert. He fed them. He rescued them. He's always showing his grace and his kindness and his protection to his people. And yet as his people, anytime something goes wrong, we're like, oh God, you've abandoned me. You hate me now, right? He's like, no, you, you should assume that I still love you. I struggle with this. When, when my plans go off course, when I feel out of control, it is so easy for my heart to be like, well, God, God must hate me now. No, he, he loves you. He proved that by sending Jesus for you. He loves you. Trust him. Trust him more than control. One of my favorite superheroes growing up in a, in a world of pain was Superman. Why, why did I like Superman so much? Superman didn't feel pain. Superman was never out of control. So we've kind of got this like false savior, Superman, who in many ways looks just like Jesus. I mean, he's all about Truth, not physically, right? But he, he loves truth and justice. He cares for people. He saves people, right? He's an outsider from an alien place in the heavens. Right? Like, there's all kinds of things that are similar in the Superman story and the Jesus story. But what do you see in the picture I put up there? You, you see, I don't know if you can tell what that is, but those are bullets bouncing off of Jesus. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. God help me. Those are bullets bouncing off of Superman's chest. Here's the contrast. Bullets don't bounce off of Jesus' chest. Jesus took the bullets for us. Jesus suffered for us. I wanted Superman. I don't want to hurt anymore. My whole childhood, I was tempted towards that myth. Can you just get me, God, to a place where I can stay in control? and no one can hurt me anymore, and everything will be safe, and I'll just be fine. We just protect me? And we, we look forward to getting to that place where we see him face to face. He promises that he will wipe away every tear. He promises that we will get there someday, but, but this world is a world where the bullets hurt us, where we're not in control, where we don't get to manipulate things according to our plans 
where we will be hurt and, and we look at the Savior who also was hurt for us. And I like to say this a lot. Jesus not only suffered for us, but he suffered with us. So Hebrews 4 tells us that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So we see him as the sympathetic model that we can run to. He's been hurt. He's been tempted. He's been beat up like you and me. But he passed the test. He defeated the devil. He actually endured. Adam and Eve had everything perfect in paradise, and they gave in to the temptations. Jesus was in the wilderness. He was hungry. He was empty. He was out of control. Philippians 2 says he joyfully laid all of that down because he loved you and he loved me. Isn't that good news? This good news is the good news that changes our hearts so that we can believe that God the Father is worth trusting. What Jesus knew instinctually, I can trust my Father. He's good. Jesus paid the price to change our minds so that we can now also believe that with big brother Jesus. We can also be led by the Spirit. We can also be filled with the Spirit by the good news of a Jesus who passed all these tests, who resisted all these temptations. Not only that, but he actually died on the cross for us. He took our sin on that cross. He died. He rose from the dead, proving that he had defeated sin and death once and for all. As we try to apply this, I think it's really important that as we feel out of control, as we feel like we're losing our grip, which happens every day, we bring that to the Lord in prayer. We groan that to God. Romans 8, we talked about this when we talked about Scripture memory a few weeks ago. Romans 8 is a great passage to memorize. If you just want to memorize like one key chapter of the Bible, it talks about how we, along with all of creation, are groaning and longing for that day where he will fix everything and everything will be made right. We're groaning, we're longing, we're waiting for it. But Romans 8 weaves that together and says part of the groaning process is allowing ourselves to trust the Spirit. And as we trust the Spirit, he helps our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father, my daddy loves me. And to continue to walk in obedience to him, to trust him more than control. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's the miracle we want. Not the miracle of a flashy display of, look at me, I have super spiritual powers. The miracle of trusting God, of loving him. That's the miracle that we are praying for. That's the spirit-filled life that we desire. All who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In your groaning, when you lose control, when your plans go out the window, groan that back to God. Say, God, I'm I'm struggling here. God, I'd, I'd prefer my plans to be followed, but I trust you more than my plans. I trust you 
more than my control. Make that your very real and constant prayer to him. Just as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, if there's any way to take this cup of suffering, take it, but not, not my will, your will be done, Father. You can trust him. The Spirit supernaturally will enable that to be true in your heart. It's interesting, this idea of putting God to the test, and we'll wrap up here. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.16 is a direct reference to another story in Exodus. Exodus chapter 17. So as we think of being led by the Spirit, Jesus is referencing back to this story in Exodus chapter 17, where God had already proven himself faithful. He had already supplied all the needs of Israel. He'd taken care of them again and again. When they were hungry, he fed them. When they were thirsty, he gave them water. They come to another spot where they're like, we're thirsty. Obviously, God is terrible and we can't trust him. And so they decide they're going to kill Moses. They're going to bring Moses up on charges. It's a mutiny. They're going to have a regime change. They're going to kill him. Before they get a chance to kill him, Moses talked to the Lord about it. Moses is like, by the way, they're going to stone me. God says, it's not about you, Moses. It's about me. They don't really want to kill you, Moses. They want to kill me. They don't really want to destroy you, Moses. They don't really hate you, Moses. They hate me, their God. And so God does this crazy thing. He's like, okay, Moses, we'll let the Israelites bring me up on charges. A courtroom drama unfolds. He says, proceed in front of all the people, all the witnesses, and make sure you've got your staff, his scepter of authority, kind of like a judge's gavel. And then you'll walk where this rock is, where I've always revealed my presence, and I've fed and supplied water for you people in the past. And then as you hear all the complaints, as you hear the charges, as the people put me to the test, then you strike the rock. You, Moses, bring judgment down on me. And then water gushed out. And the people's thirst was supplied. And they were taken care of. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. God allowed himself to be judged in the Old Testament. And so part of what's so hard about this text is it's like a hyperlink to a hyperlink to a, you know, it's like a connection to a connection to a connection to another story. But here's the bottom line. You can trust him. You can trust him. Jesus is the one who was struck for us. We complained. We didn't pass the test. We gave in to the temptation. We judged God. And the wrath of God, the judgment of God was poured out on Jesus instead of us. If you trust him, he will give you life. He will spring forth those living waters to satisfy your thirsty heart. You can trust him. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us more than we love ourselves. You gave yourself for us. We struggle to believe. We see big brother Jesus trusting you, being led by your spirit, passing these tests. But God, we fail these tests every day. So will you come by faith in our hearts? Will you, by your Holy Spirit, root us and ground us in your love that we would supernaturally remember your grace? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.